And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on March 11th, 2022. Anthony Aiello is Associate Director of Conservation, Plant Breeding, and Collections at Longwood Gardens, where he participates in tree conservation, tree exploration, and evaluation and collections development. Previously, he served for 22 years as the Gail E. Maloney Director of Horticulture and Curator at the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania, where he managed the Morris Arboretum's historic gardens and living collections. These positions have allowed him to travel throughout the US, Europe, China, and Japan to find novel plants suitable for growing in the Delaware Valley. He has a Bachelor of Science in Biology with a concentration in Botany from Cornell University and a Master of Science in Horticulture from Purdue University and for many years chaired the North American China Plant Exploration Consortium and participated in the American Public Gardens Association Taxonomy and Plant Collections Committees. He has written extensively about his travels as well as his historic and plant interests. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Tony. We're delighted you can be with us today. Great to be here. Thanks so much. You have really been a pioneer in plant exploration. And what we want to do is first find out how did you find your way to horticulture? Okay, so it's a good question. I would say I did, I was not one of those, you know, kids or teenagers who was just enthralled with growing plants or collecting plants. I always liked being outside, you know, and whether I knew it or not, consciously or subconsciously, just enjoyed being outdoors. Uh, I did, you know, I helped my grandparents and my parents with their gardens. I, you know, I lived in sort of this, I would say, liminal area between the city and the outer suburbs. And so there were these, you know, kind of edges and, and there were still undeveloped areas that were you know, not wild, but kind of an urban wild. And so, you know, my friends and I would explore in those areas and, and you know, build dams and, you know, do all this for crayfish and do all those things that, you know, kids do. And I think that evolved into just an interest in being outdoors and my surroundings outside. And, and that eventually evolved into an interest in plants. So it was never, I would say, you know, it was sort of a latent thing that, um, came to fruition, no pun intended, uh, at, I would say as I was in college, I started to, you know, things started to coalesce for me. Yeah. And some people have it, like they have this burning desire at a very early age and other people, like you say, it grows as you go through life, you know, 
Yeah, and I and actually, I was, my undergrad was in biology and botany, so I was approaching it more from understanding the natural world. And it wasn't until even after I had my my undergraduate degree that I began to realize that horticulture and public horticulture was was a profession that you could have. And it, you know, I'm struck, Tony, by the fact that you what you just said you came at it kind of foundationally with uh, a good fundamental understanding of natural history. And then all of a sudden, boom, here's plants and here's horticulture as kind of that next step up. I'm thinking a lot of us just jump into it and, you know, you're out in a horticulture class and learning about oak trees, but you don't know anything about soils and streams and and wildlife and and things like that. You know, I'm looking at your uh, job title. And by the way, Longwood Gardens, when I was right out of high school, going to a little two-year horticulture program outside of Chicago near DeKalb, Illinois. The highlight of our two years there was the trip to Longwood Gardens. And the Oh, that's great, yeah. Took the bus <laughs> there and everything like that. And man, it was just a whole nother level. You're the Associate Director of Conservation and Plant Breeding and Collections at Longwood Gardens. Yes. I hope you're not stretched too thin there, but can you tell us about your current position there? Sure. So, yeah, it's a long title, and I get to do lots of different things. And, and they sort of fall into, I'd say, three buckets, one of which is plant exploration, and then we can talk a little more about that. The other is trials and evaluation. And uh, so some of those things that we're going to be trialing or evaluating come from plant exploration. Others are uh, cultivated sources. And then the third thing is collections or curation. So working with the horticulture staff to bring unusual things into Longwood Gardens. And so there are two of us with that title, uh, Peter Zale and myself. And we, we, we're in the research division of horticulture. Horticulture at Longwood is, is, as you can imagine, a very big department. We're a small sliver of that and we, things kind of go two ways in terms of what we do. We bring in things that we think would work for the garden and evaluate them and then try and get them into the public garden. And then if gardeners, horticulturists have interest in things that they, they're not sure will work, uh, they'll make requests to us and we can evaluate those things and, and see how, and basically do trials on them, see how they do and, and if they cut it or not. And, uh, and then that's another another avenue for getting plants out into the garden onto public display. So no, I'm not stretched too thin. It's, it's really a great place to be. It really allows me to delve deeply into, you know, lots of things, you know, lots of rabbit holes um, and, uh, you know, really explore lots of both uh, intellectual, but also real horticultural interests and, and pursuits of mine. Well, you know, it's really interesting. For a long time, people would say, when a, well, you're not environmentalist, you're a horticulturalist, and horticulturalists just study individual plants. They don't look at the whole ecosystem. But that has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. And as you know, as a director of conservation, you're looking at not only individual plants, but actually how they function within the system. And a lot of people don't understand that. And um, when you are out on your plant explorations, 
you're actually, you're looking at plants within the context of how they grow within a certain location. So you're always conscious of conservation. So can you give our listeners a little bit more about how those two cross over and how you see them functioning together? Sure. So um, conservation, you know, the, the word can mean different things to different people. And so within, at Longwood, within our research department, we do have a group that we call land stewardship who are in, who are involved with conserving the natural areas at Longwood. So Longwood is about a thousand acres. What most visitors see is about 300 of those acres, maybe even less. And then there's the rest, which is managed as forest, uh, meadows and wetlands, other sorts of natural areas. So the sort of conservation writ large at Longwood, that's, that, which is you know wonderful effort because there's a lot of land that we're preserving there. What I'm focused on is more species conservation. So looking at plants that are either uh, at the edges of their natural ranges or plants that are threatened uh, in some way, shape, or form in the wild. So either looking at rare and endangered species or looking at plants that because their ranges are restricted either by heat or by cold, May there may be threats to local populations based on climate change. Just as, an, as one example, uh, we are interested in looking for some oak replacements for uh, Quercus ruba, for red oak, which at least in you know the Philadelphia area and and sort of more widely you know on the East Coast is is really affected by bacterial leaf scourge. And so one of the species that uh, has a very similar growth habit, has similar fall color is Spanish oak or the southern red oak, Quercus falcata, which is, if you travel through the south, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very, very common. You see it everywhere. But it reaches the limit of its northern range in southeastern Pennsylvania, a little bit in Jersey, New Jersey, and um, perhaps a little bit on Staten Island or Long Island. So this is a species that really has southern genes in it. And, and, you know, this may not be threatened by climate change, at least in our area. It may advance with climate change. But it's a plant that uh, is, is actually listed uh, as threatened in Pennsylvania because of habitat, habitat destruction over time. And so it's a species that really has great interest in terms of preserving local provenances, but also from a horticultural point of view, in terms of a replacement for a, a species that, you know, perhaps has some issues, either, you know, both biotic and environmental issues, that is red oak. So that's one example of the, you know, sort of very local work that uh, we're doing. And interesting, because I did some work on Xylella fastidiosa, which is the bacterial leaf scorch. And we were looking, I would take the students to different places. And there is a Quercus falcata in the Fort Washington State Park. And so yes, the, the uh, right. rangers, rangers always point it out because, yep. you know, this might, this tree might be become important for our area. And when students see something like that and they hear what you're saying, they become more attentive to it. And I think that that's a critical thing so that no matter what age you are, if you're aware of something like that and you see it, you become um, more cognizant of the fact that it can either help us here in in the Northeast, or it it might just be that we need to expand its its population in certain areas because it is going extinct or it's rare in that particular region. Yeah, so there are there are old uh, herbarium records. By old, I mean you know pre World War II um, or pre World War II up into the early 50s, but from the 1800s and the early first half of the 1900s. Um, Herbarium records of 
Corpus falcata being more widespread throughout you know, southern Delaware County and um, southern southwestern Philadelphia, Philadelphia County. And, uh, you know, all of that is, it basically grows on the, the, the edge or the transition between coastal plain and Piedmont, most of which is now, you know, Philadelphia airport where the stadiums are in, in South Philadelphia. So much of its habitat is, is highly developed. So again, yeah. So those populations are very fragmented in, in Pennsylvania, at least when you get further South, it, you know, it's, it's widely grown and then occurs widely naturally. But yeah, so it's looking at these, you know, sort of the edges of things where thing where it gets very interesting. So that's one of the one of the goals from the plant conservation side of things that uh, I'm working on at Longwood. Tony, when you're talking to your colleagues at other institutions, and I know you're we're speaking to you today, and you're at Dunbarton Oaks in uh, Washington D.C. Uh, are they sharing the same mission that you're articulating? that Longwood Gardens is doing in terms of plant conservation? Sure. We, we meaning those of us at Longwood, always work in partnership with other institutions, and whether they're domestic, you know, across the United States or international, rarely do we go it alone with any of these projects. And, and so, you know, for instance, with, the, again, just get back to the, the Southern Red Oak as one example, we made some collections. There's some fairly extensive populations just southwest of Longwood, near the border of Chester County, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. So we made you know, very abundant collections there, have lots and lots of seedlings, more than we can, uh, you know, more than we can really use at Longwood. So you know, people are very interested in those. And you know, people are interested in these, these same issues are not just, they, they are local, but they're also occurring you know, for everybody. And so the same kinds of questions, you know, we'd be happy to distribute those seedlings throughout Philadelphia or, or even more broadly. Uh, along similar lines, back in September of last year, 21, uh, Peter Zalg and my colleague and I were doing some targeted collecting of native azaleas in southeastern Alabama and southwestern Georgia. But while we were there, there were two other, you know, there are many oaks in, in that part of the United States, but there were two that we were particularly interested in, both of which are threatened. Uh, one is the Boynton oak, Quercus boyntonii, which is highly threatened, you know, sort of globally threatened. Another is Quercus georgiana, the Georgia oak, which is also has a relatively high level of threat, not quite as, as high as the first one. So we were able to make fairly decent collections of both of those oak species and grow them on at Longwood. There were lots of our sister brother institutions around the United States who were, who were very interested in having these oaks. So we did, we distributed acorns of the Corcus Georgiana to those other institutions. And then the Corcus Boyntonii are, we're starting to germinate, not ready to distribute yet, but once they are hardened off, we will we'll make distributions of those. So this gets to this idea of a meta collection that is rather than you know, one garden going somewhere and collecting X species and then kind of holding it tight at their garden. The thinking now is to make that collection and spread it around at, to as many institutions as possible so that if there's some catastrophe at any one institution, you have that that species spread around. And so, and, and 
Similarly, you know, let's say we could maybe grow five plants, five trees of whatever species we're talking about. But if you have five gardens growing five trees or 10 gardens growing five trees, you sort of get these multiplier effects in terms of the amount of genetic diversity that you can, you can conserve. So yes, that's a long answer to your question, Hal, that yes, other people are interested and we like to serve as a conduit to, you know, we have the the ability to travel and, and visit these places and really like to serve as a conduit for sharing these these plants as widely as we can. You know, I, I think that that kind of reminds me that you are very much like John Bartram, <laughs> who liked to share his plants uh, around the globe. And if it wasn't for him saving the Franklinia, we wouldn't have it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting the chills as I'm listening to you because a lot of people might not know this, but not every botanic garden does the same thing. Although botanic gardens, they do grow collections on like you're talking about, um, but a lot of them don't have the resources to send people out to travel. And so having someone like you share something with maybe an institution that may not have as many resources to have plant explorers go out, they're actually benefiting from your exploration through the the generosity of your organization to share with them something that they might not be able to have because of their limited resources. That's that's very true. And and uh, hard to think of myself in the company of John Bartram. But I think I think that in general, horticulture <laughs> maybe in the in the uh, in the lineage, uh, maybe not in the company, but to me, what defines horticulture is propagation, and that's what distinguishes it from botanical pursuits. That's really the difference in my mind. And what comes with propagation is distribution and sharing. And generally, I mean, as a I'd say as a rule, horticulturists are very generous and very willing to share. And I think part of that comes from the fact that you can, you know, by and large, except that, you know, there's a few examples, few exceptions, by and large, you can duplicate what you have. And so if you have one of something, generally you can, you know, get two of it. And so if you, then if you give one away, you can always reproduce it. And so Franklinia is a perfect example. You know, it's, it's a plant that has been preserved through propagation in botanic gardens and through cultivation. So, you know, I think inherently horticulturists, you know, their interest is in multiplying plants and as a result, distributing those plants. Yeah, I just want to jump back. I guess this is the arborist in me, Tony. You mentioned a couple Quercus in Alabama under threat. What are their plant health care issues? So uh, the first one I mentioned, Quercus pointonii, is a, it's not what you might think of as a typical oak. It grows on a mountaintop barrens in just a handful of locations in Alabama. And it's more of a shrubby, small, multi-stem shrubby plant than it is a tall, towering tree. And its, its threats are mostly through habitat destruction and also through fire suppression. And so many of these habitats are perpetuated through fire. The site we visited, which was just outside of Birmingham, Alabama, there were Boynton Oaks that were at most 15, 20 feet tall at most, multiple stems. Some of those trees were, were, have been um, uh, not just estimated, have been cored and, and have been shown to be 
upwards of 200 years old. And so, you know, these are incredibly long-lived plants, but still fragile because of, uh, largely because there aren't that many of these habitats left. And they tend to be, these habitats can be colonized by native species, but native species that are not fire resistant. So again, as I said, it's, when fire is repressed in these places, uh, you tend to have other things like black cherry and sweet gum and things like that come in and, and essentially, you know, crowd out, shade out these other species. So it's really, you know, these plants really need some, uh, well, they don't need human intervention. <laughs> so they need an intervention to, to really restore these habitats. Previously, you know, it, they were doing better on their own. Uh, so, you know, that's often one of the, one of the causes leading to rarity in plants is uh, habitat destruction and, as, and often as a result of habitat fragmentation. So you have these isolated populations that don't have good, either they're too far apart or, or uh, there's not good gene flow uh, among those populations. And so you get, you know, an ever narrowing uh, genetic diversity among those, those individual places. So that's the Quercus Blintonia is a really good example of uh, habitat, you know, fragmentation as a re resulting in threats, uh, sort of long-term threats to it. One quick comment I wanted to make, uh, you've made several observations and I think Eva and I are sharing, kind of being mesmerized, but about your, co your comments in general about plant conservation. But it strikes me, and I think our listeners know, you know, we're Philadelphia-based, Delaware Valley, I guess we're zone 7A, 7B, things like that. But I got to thinking worldwide how communities virtually everywhere are touched by similar issues in terms of conservation, right? And um, 18 months ago, if you'd asked me what assisted migration was, I don't, I think I would be hearing the term for the first time. Now, fast forward, and it is becoming you know, a regular part of the conversation and also like what I'm trying to articulate, this this critical need for collecting and watching what plants do to survive in threatened environments and then looking for where they can migrate successfully. You know, I was, I was thinking when Hal was talking about locations around the world and you were talking about these edge habitats got me thinking about what's going on in the Ukraine and some of the populations of plant material that's there that might be nowhere else mm, in the world. Right. And what happens to that? You know, what happens to that? Sure. What, you know, yeah, what, what, I mean, I... Who goes in and explores? Right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big, you know, <laughs> big question. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I, the good news is that plants are very resilient. And so during the, and so what, as one example, there is really great, I don't know too much about this, but I, so I'm going a little bit out on the limb. There is great plant diversity in Crimea because of it's where it is. It's a peninsula and, you know, it's a very interesting place. During the, I'm going to go way back, uh, during the Crimean War in the late 1800s, you know, it's pretty brutal. Um, War, it was, you know, sort of trench warfare. There was lots of bombardments. And one of the things that the soldiers noticed in the spring was that a lot of the ephemeral bulbs were coming up. And so there's a lot of geophytes in that part of the world. And, uh, I mean, I, again, I'm 
little bit past the limits of my knowledge, but uh, you know, I think, as I said, I think plants are pretty resilient, and so that's still, even though that area was, you know, pretty much devastated during that war, which was, you know, 150 years ago or so, there still is great diversity there. So I like to hold out hope that, you know, plants are, there's sort of, you know, I'm standing outside at this beautiful garden in Washington, D.C., and, you know, plants are irrepressible. And so you, you, you know, sort of the Greek myth that you can't keep them down. They, no matter what, they'll come back. And so... I'd like to hold out hope that, you know, in a, in a really horrible situation, uh, that there, you know, that this sort of irrepressibility of the plant world will carry through and, and hopefully that's some hope, you know, in an otherwise really dark situation. That's helpful for, for all of us to hear. You know, I had heard something about the panhandle of Florida and how critical and where you you were exploring in Alabama Mississippi. Um, and one plant that I'm teaching right now is Elysium floridanum, mm, and that's uh-huh. its native area. And, you know, I was listening to some people talking and they said, you know, one of the things that a lot of uh, explorers are doing is going into these areas right now and looking for uh, plants that need to be um, expanded and and dispersed through botanic gardens because of our hurricanes. Oh, sure. And they believe that some of these areas will become so high in salinity that these plants might not exist anymore. So do you look for, and it sounds like you do, you look for these edges that are places where people really need to go to gather seeds so that the dispersion is in a larger area and uh, more widespread. And is that how you kind of determine where you're going to go? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, and no. Yes is a short answer, sorry. So a couple things come into factor here. We, one of the things that we do to determine where we go is really based on our collection policy, and this is true for most institutions. And at Longwood, we're fortunate because we have, we have a collections policy which determines what we grow and what we focus on. Because even though, you know, there's, there are you know, lots of things we can do, at a place like Longwood Gardens, you know, you still need some boundaries or guardrails. And so what we're doing really is looking at our collections policy, and that is driving our plant exploration. And this is, this is not unique to us. This is true, you know, at, at most gardens, or I'd say at all gardens that participate in plant exploration. So, yes, yeah, so this is something that all gardens do and what really drives their plant exploration is having a well-defined collections policy. So, for instance, you know, one of the things that at Longwood Gardens that we have is one of our core collections are uh, azaleas and rhododendrons. And uh, traditionally, native azaleas has been one of those. And so we, the reason we were in, the, in that part of the world, in, in southern uh, Alabama and southern Georgia, was because of the diversity of native azaleas there. And some of them reached kind of the limits of the range there. So that was really what was driving um, what we were looking for. That's one thing. And then also, if there's a conservation, uh, a species conservation mission in or aspect of collections policy, for instance, the oaks, that is one of the things that drives it. So there's so much to take on that having a, a policy, a program that really helps with 
helping, you know, guide and, and decide what to do is, is critical because otherwise you would be just running around in circles trying to do everything. I know you live um, bringing it back to Philadelphia in very close proximity to Wissahickon Valley Park and Carpenter's Woods. There's no time better than now, Tony, to ask you if there's specific tree or tree group that speaks to you in terms of any kind of spiritual connection, metaphysical connection, or just good old fashioned, good looking tree. Sure. I, I live in, I'm very fortunate where I live is near, it's in Northwest Philadelphia for those of you who are further, further afield. And I live half a block from a place called Carpenter's Wood, which is a Oak beach hickory forest, mostly Oak beach forest. And it was, probably first cut in the early the mid 1700s and as far as people can tell perhaps not cut after that uh or maybe it's only selectively cut after that so many of the trees in this area which i can see from my front porch are of 200 250 years old so it's it's pretty remarkable to live amongst these and some of these uh come down into people's front yards and backyards. And so directly across from my house are two magnificent white oaks really spoken to me. Um, it's just, you know, really remarkable presence in the landscape. So I have a much longer commute than I used to have. And what's really struck me over the past, this past win- fall and winter and now early spring have been the, our native sycamore, the Platinus occidentalis. And uh, they're they're really pretty remarkable trees, and during the winter they have really been speaking to me. And um, one of the a coworker of mine, Pandora Young, who you you had on this podcast relatively recently, uh, I'll steal her line. She always refers to them as the girthiest of our native trees, and I love that. And if you look at there's a wonderful website called PA Big Trees, which track which tracks the largest trees throughout Pennsylvania. And if you sort that by basically by um, the points that they give them, which sort of an estimate of, of mass, uh, roughly an estimate of mass, all the biggest ones, you know, the top, I'd say 20, 25 with maybe one exception are all sycamores. And they're, you know, they, they grow really fast, but they live, they seem to live for not forever, but they, they live a very long time. And so I've been fascinated with them Recently, just because of the, the sort of immensity that they achieve and, and the longevity of them. And so in general, those two these days, uh, if you're looking at, you know, big tree species, white oak and our native sycamore are two that really have been speaking to me. I love that. Uh, and not to copy you, Tony, but uh, I've been feeling those sycamore vibes myself, uh, especially on a sunny day blue sky and they just uh, when the sun hits them and that white against the blue is uh, is just profound i don't want to yeah. use that other word amazing because right, they use right. it too much but <laughs> yeah they are they it's, yeah and i'm teaching it this um this week actually i just taught it this week and i was showing the students how the babies were coming off the the old tree that had disappeared because of age and this is at longwood and the trunk on the original one was probably about five or six feet across 
and I, I was I was taken back because there were these new these new trees coming on off the sides of it. And I was trying to explain to the students that these shoots are from the original parent. And it must have been an enormous tree at the time because the, the students were amazed that there were these young baby trees coming off of it. And we were looking at the bark and how amazing the sycamores are. So yeah, it's, it's an amazing tree. Yeah, what's interesting about them is, and this speaks to something that an obvious yet fundamental difference between plants and, and animals is that some of these old sycamores, they may be, you know, sometimes you see these old sycamores that have two or three trunks coming from the base and at massive trunks. And I think those are re-sprouts from a, a much older tree. And so those trunks you may be looking at may be 100 years old, 150 years old. But if they're re-sprouts from a tree that was, I don't know, 200 years old when the original trunk died, then you're, you, know, you may be looking at an organism that is several hundred years old. And you know, no individual part of it may be that old, but that tree, that organism may have been there for hundreds of years and it's just perpetuating itself. And oaks tend not to do that, but sycamores are you know, one species that does do that. So you know, I find it pretty fascinating, this ability to, to regenerate and to, you know, I won't say in perpetuity, but for... Uh, you know, a much longer time scale than certainly as humans were, were used to. You know, I find it really fascinating. I like to tell that, show that to my students as well and say, you know, what you may be looking at may be, you know, you may be looking at a hundred year old stem right now, but if this re-sprouted from another hundred year old stem that re-sprouted from a hundred year old stem. So this, you know, there's been a sycamore, this sycamore, has been here for, you know, maybe centuries. And so it's really a fascinating, you know, it's a fascinating thought. And again, it really, I think that's one thing that, um, and again, and sort of the, the ability to, to propagate plants is this chasm between the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom that I find, you know, endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I love that. And you've given us a lot to think about, Tony, with your work, and we hope we can have you on again uh, sometime soon to hear more about some of the exploration that you're doing for Longwood. We thank you sure. and for taking the time out of your busy day. We know that you're down there to do some botanizing uh, at the Dunbarton Oaks. And uh, again, we really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. It's, it's great. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I you know, appreciate your having me. And yeah, I'm happy to be co come back uh, anytime. Great, Tony. Enjoy the rest of your day with those magnolias in full flower. Great. Thanks a lot. Nice talking to you. Thanks. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank <laughs> you.